Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today, I get to catch up with one of my old friends, which I love doing on this podcast, Dr. Snehal Patel, who goes by a doctor, at least according to us, because he is, in fact, a doctor. Snehal Patel, MD slash JD, is the CEO at MyDoc, Asia's leading patient-centric digital healthcare platform. Did I get that right? He is, as I've mentioned, a physician and lawyer. So basically, he's one-upped all of us brown people. He's a Kaufman Fellow. He has been a Forbes 30 under 30 judge. He is a serial entrepreneur and venture capitalist and has been invited to and spoken on numerous panels related to healthcare globally. We talk about everything health tech in Asia. I learned a lot because I knew nothing. And he also talks about 28 Hong Kong Street, a bar he opened up in Singapore 10 years ago. I've never been. I heard it's awesome because my husband went without me. But, you know, side note. We also talk about our glory days in NYC because, you know, at the end of the day, it's about me, really, this whole podcast. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with my friend, Dr. Snehal Patel. I, I know we're friends and I know we've drank many times. I just never realized <laughs> how much shit you've done. So I researched, I was researching you last night and I was like, holy shit, like he's actually pretty useful. Like I could have actually like gotten a lot of advice and feedback from this guy. So you moved in 2008, right? Yeah. You were with the Claremont group then. Obviously, you're, I knew you were practicing law at Cravath, Swain and more. So what was the move? Why the move to Singapore then? Really, it was just, uh, it was kind of on a whim. Um, we, uh, so what my business partner now, but a friend back then uh, in New York had got received this offer from a mysterious billionaire. So Claremont Group is essentially the family office of a large, uh, I think I think he's now number two on the uh, on the Forbes list for, from, from New Zealand. So a Kiwi billionaire okay. who set up a family office to invest in different types of uh, businesses. And so, you know, my business partner basically just graduated from IMD. So he was a lawyer in New York. That's how we met. He moved to Switzerland, did his IMD thing, and then just sort of heard about this potential role based in Singapore to do investments in education and healthcare, like just sort of out there. So 08, you know, and I think we all, I think we're probably all in New York around the time, right? We were, we were, yeah. we were watching, I was with you when Obama won. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, um, but, uh, you know, 08 came, comes around. I was already looking for, you know, sort of Cravath is great, but I was looking for my next gig and I was thinking about venture. Uh, just because I'd done a lot of work um, at Cravath in not really venture per se, but like with venture back companies. And so had had an offer in, in New York, but then this thing opened up and, you know, fiance now wife at the time or fiance at the time now wife is like, yeah, we've been in New York now 10 years. Right. And that's sort of like the sell by date. <laughs> let's go do something different. Right. So I was right. actually kind of on the fence and she's like, well, let's just do it. Like if it sucks, we can come back in two years. I'm like, yeah. That sounds like a plan. So it would be an adventure, especially and then, of course, you know, GFC hit and you know, shit wasn't all that fun in New York. And so. you didn't have kids then. So why not? Yeah, like, it, easy to yeah. move. Right. Right. So that, that was it, really. It's kind of probably similar to what you guys were thinking. Well, Dubai, India. I remember that sort of the, the era when you guys were around. You guys were in India at the time that Bunty was there then, right? Oh, yeah. We've had some Bunty nights. We've, <laughs> yeah. uh, we partied in his house in Bangalore couple of times i was like what is this place i don't understand your life bunty like i and then i would ask jaru and she'd be like i don't know either and yeah no we, so, we so, um over, overlapped with him in bangalore for i think couple almost a year and a half oh really yeah, yeah. He's, so, so now he's singapore he's in singapore now so like you know i we, heard yeah it's so funny like the, it's a really small world but uh yeah are you so, do you ever cross over with him i know socially you do but professionally yeah, I mean, like, I think he's sort of like doing a bunch of different things, and we're we're, we're always kicking ideas around. So yeah, I think right. he's he's now goading me. He's like, dude, we got to do something together now. Like, we got to put it together. Like, enough talking, enough drinking. Like, let's put something together. I'm like, dude, I can't I imagine. I imagine like, you two getting together. Some that that would you would something would explode for sure. I can't <laughs> can't believe it hasn't already happened. By the way, because I know he left he left Goldman, right? Yeah, in Goldman. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you're in Singapore. And then, of course, you know, I'm, I'm LinkedIn researching you and I'm like, holy shit, how do I sum his life up in 45 minutes? But 
I'm going to try. First, I want to start with MyDoc. So I know you're CEO and co-founder of MyDoc, which is Asia's leading patient-centric digital healthcare platform. And then you're also co-founder of Proof & Company, Gallon Growth, and also managing director at Sena Partners. Sena yes. Partners. Yes. So it's a lot. Would you say the MyDoc thing is your kind of your main gig right now and it, everything it else you're kind of supporting? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I can back up a bit. So after I okay. left uh, Claremont, so I left Claremont with the, you know, with my partner, business partner who had um, brought us in. We all basically, we were, when we were at the fund, we were running a $100 million fund on, he was focusing on education. I was on healthcare. It was awesome. Like I did a lot of work in India at the time. I was focused in Hyderabad. So I actually kind of was back and forth between Singapore and Hyderabad setting up clinics. So it's really healthcare services with pre-techs and before telemedicine became really sexy, it's still very much like clinics and you know pharmacies and that sort of thing. So quick question on the healthcare uh, yeah. services. Was this the first time you were really getting into it once yeah, you moved? Actually, okay. Yeah, because, okay. because and this is what's kind of really interesting about the about Claremont, right? Um, you know, so Richard Chandler, who's the founder He's an entrepreneur. He sort of came, you know, he, his family was well off, but he basically took, you know, essentially a $10 million family fortune and made it to, to 5 billion, right? Through with him and his brother, like they're legends in the sort of investment community. Um, pretty secretive, but like, you know, the, the stuff that's come out. So he, you know, basically takes a pretty non, a pretty, you know, iconoclastic view in investing and said, I like to take, you know, smart people that have domain expertise potentially, but I'll train them up, right? And I'll give them capital. And that was sort of the gig. And it was really, really fun because, you know, coming out of New York in a structured law firm job and before that, you know, right. medical doctor. And now all of a sudden, here's like, there's this oh, guy. Yeah, we're, like, we're getting to the whole MDJD thing. <laughs> we're going to want to go through your uh, nice Indian boy childhood too as well. But continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And so basically, it just came out and it was, it, that's what made it really interesting because he's just like, look, I want to do some really cool stuff in, in India because he was invested pretty heavily in the public markets, but on the private okay. side. So, startup clinics, startup schools, you know, you guys go build this, go like buy stuff. It's, it was really fun. Like it was getting on the ground, yeah. doing it with people's money and like learning how to run a business, which before was all academic, right? So that was the first time I really got into it. Um, so okay. yeah, so that fast forward into, you know, a couple of years, we sort of built up a couple of teams and had done things in a couple of markets. So India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, I got a good sense of the edu the, the healthcare landscape in those markets. Um, my co okay. my, so my business partner on the education side. Remember, like, look, this is a great gig. You know, not you know, pretty good pay, etc. But you know, let's be really serious about it. We got to do it on our own, right? We got to go and sort of build our own businesses. So that's when we decided to step off. We set up Sana, which is essentially kind of a holding company. And then okay. we and all the businesses that are like sort of that we're our co-founders of or companies that we started essentially part of that structure, right? So right. So then, and then we basically divide and conquer saying, we all started together, but then ultimately one person becomes a designated leader, right? The CEO of the business and they grow it from that point onward. And right. that's sort of how things kind of, and of course with my background, you know, the healthcare gig made the most sense for me to Makes lead. Sense. And so that's, that's sort of what's happening. And then we sort of sit on each other's boards and make sure that we are pretty close in terms of governance and share economics and all that. But that's right. kind of the model. Yeah. So it's been, it's actually really interesting because yeah. it's kind of like, you know, an investor would look at, you know, you diversify portfolio theory, et cetera. Like you don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's a way, this right. is a way for us to be entrepreneurs, but to diversify, right? So if one thing's doing really well, great. Yeah. You give up some of the upside, but you're also sort of covering if one thing just doesn't work out. And work as we out. know, 90% of startups are going to fail. I mean, there right. is going to be a chance. And I tell this all the time, like we've done a lot of crazy things in crazy markets and touch wood. So far things have gone well. We, I mean, we are flying close to the sun. We will fail. I mean, like that is yeah. one of the things that I'm supposed to. It's not part of the whole gig. Right, right. Otherwise, so, something's something's wrong, right? If yeah, you just don't exactly. Fail. Yeah. So you have this unique position, obviously. You you are an MD and you are on the business side of things, which not a lot of doctors have that. So I want to talk to, talk to you about my doc and the platform. And I guess and I got to ask this question just because I'm you know we're in the U.S. Would you compare that to any other platforms here uh, in terms of similarities and, and offerings? Yeah. I mean, like maybe the, the easiest one, because it's so well known in the States, is Teladoc, right? So Teladoc okay. is a huge business. They're obviously, I think they're the largest telemedicine provider in the US market. And we actually share customers. Like, so for example, Aetna, the big insurance insurer in, um, in, in America, they're smaller out here, but we're actually their telemedicine provider for 
Singapore, Hong Kong, now looking at markets even like Vietnam, et cetera. So I think okay. there's, that's the similar analog for your listeners. Like it's one of the, they're, they're kind of right. similar. Um, right. Yeah. So that's, that's probably the sim- easiest comparison. And you guys are all over Asia, right? So, I mean, how many customers, how many patients, I guess, do you have on a so, daily basis? Yeah. So we have like, we're across uh, six markets now. Um, and okay. Because and again, similarly to way, the way Teladoc tends to work, we, we're not direct to customers. We work with enterprises, in our cases, insurers, again, like what Teladoc does. Okay. Um, Got it. And, you know, so I think, you know, you know, we have around 10 million eligible users. Like the metric that we use is really how many people have our services as a benefit as part of their as insurance access, coverage. Like yeah, exactly. It, right. Exactly. Right. So it's around 10 okay. million. So it's a big number. Um, but yeah, let's see. I mean, you know, these businesses kind of go up and down and it's, it's still pretty early days here in Asia for some of these type of services that in the U S you take for granted. Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So like, that's, I was gonna, that's just want to ask you, how do people in Asia, even specifically India, cause obviously we're, we're South Asian. How do people feel about health tech? Is it a weird, is it a concept People are accepting. How do yeah. doctors feel about it over there? Is there kind of a push away from it? I would say, I mean, again, it's, I'm now getting more and more distant to what to how things are in the U.S. But I, you know, if, if you just look at Teladoc and how, how the length of time it took them to get to their sort of prominence, you know, we were probably a couple of years, five years behind the U.S. in terms of adoption okay. of some of these technologies. But I think the flip side is. The consumer on the ground here is insanely connected, right? Um, you don't right. have the, the big thing, and I think from our from our legal perspective, and you I think appreciate this, there's nowhere near the paranoia around privacy. And it's almost cultural, right? I mean, okay. and I, yeah. I, I've, I've lived here in Singapore. Singapore's a great place. It's very everyone knows it's very well run. But you right. know, the privacy um, trade-offs that people give up here is something that, you know, I think most Americans when they first come are like, What? You're asking for are my Are you kind of everything? Would that be equating to like a HIPAA situation? Like there's no uh, no like is that what it would be? Like there would be no HIPAA rules or whatever? No, so I think there's so they're two separate. So on the regulatory side, it's actually probably a HIPAA more refined version of HIPAA. HIPAA is very, okay. I mean, it's antiquated. It's got a bunch of sort of wrinkles that don't make sense. And people have been talking about updating it, ever they haven't yet. Here they have something called, you know, again, not to get too nerdy, but the the PDPA, which is a the Personal Data Protection Act. So you have okay. privacy of your own data, right? Uh, and it's got very it. clear according to these acts, and they're very similar across markets. So Singapore is kind of really. From a juris- from a, a legal perspective, is sort of the market leader. They start up stuff here, and then like Thailand adopts it, Malaysia adopts it. They'll never admit they're adopting it because they're always competing against each other. But essentially, the same. Um, so I think actually, ah, oh, Asians, they uh, of course, yeah, exactly, other. right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I think I mean what's interesting is that so from a privacy perspective, it's uh, legally it's great. I think I'm thinking okay. I'm, th- I'm talking more about consumer adoption, right? Um, it, in the it. sense that consumers are just less or more. Uh, more accepting of uh, of companies that you know potentially could misuse data. They're like, yeah, okay, fine. We'll just it's convenient, so Got I'll it. do it. So the adoption curve is actually much more aggressive, which I think is beneficial for companies that are doing this type of stuff. That's huge. Like that's a big hurdle to like not have to deal with. It is. It's a it's a huge benefit. I think it helps right. uh, people sort of get their head around. Okay, this is a really it's a new way to speak to a doctor. Okay, cool. Um, you know, we'll, let's do that. Yeah, it is what it is. Like, like let's just make it happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As, as opposed to is the government watching me and do they have a chip in my arm kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't have that. Don't you problem. miss? Don't you miss America? Don't I do. You miss I do. <laughs> <laughs> we have all sorts of weird shit going on. Come back. It's amazing. (laughs) Obviously, pandemic, things changed in all sectors. And I wrote, I read your piece on Think Global Health with Silvana, Silvana, right? Silvana, right. I've met her actually once through you as well, through one of you guys, one one of one of the crew. Maybe not, probably not Ravi because he's, he's, by the way, on a side note, I've interviewed you and Guha. So I'm just, I'm doing it just to piss him off. That's basically the whole point. Because he was like, you know, I'm a big deal. I'm like, nope. Sorry, don't know who you are. <laughs> Thanks. Anyways, I'm, I'm leaving all this in the podcast. And so I know uh, for that piece, you know, I, I think you guys basically were saying because of the pandemic, you know, there was a shift in thinking and the governments were engaging and working more with the private sector. Can you talk a little bit more about what you guys had written? Yeah. So I thought what was really interesting here, I mean, it happened to some extent in the States, but not nearly as much in, in Asia. And I think that's because of a, 
a fundamental, I mean, there's just, we're still a lot of, other than Singapore and Hong Kong, most countries here are still emerging market, you know, sort of middle-income countries. So infrastructure is still not anywhere near the level of the U.S. So I think when the pandemic hit, you know, we saw the horror stories out of India, for example, where people are yeah. trying to airlift, you know, oxygen canisters and such. Um, the governments, though, I think were strangely, were, they were really quick to see and marshal resources around them. And there's still a, there's a booming health tech you know, sort of ecosystem to your question about, do we see that uh, that happening in India and other markets? Definitely. And I think to their credit, they were very quick to sort of like, you know, overcome some of the entrenched political opposition to these type of technologies. And basically, so marshal those resources and say, listen, we have no, we're in crisis mode. And we need to basically work together. And it's not just the right. private sector. We're not going to make up some you know, BS about some regulatory barrier. We just need to make it integrated. And so like, happen, I guess yeah. the, analog the, analogous, the analogy would be to the way that CMS, or the Center for Medicare and Medicare Services in the U.S., suspended the rules against telemedicine reimbursement at the beginning of the pandemic, which was pretty aggressive, pretty quick. Um, they did that. They also got rid of the the requirement for state licensing for for doctors to provide telemedicine, which you know in the U.S. Oh. context is revolutionary. But right. ultimately, it didn't really fundamentally shift a lot because it just basically said, "Look, you can go use Teladoc, and we'll pay for it." Whereas in like right. Indonesia's example, they actually went a couple of steps beyond that and said, "Okay, we're going to not only you know say that we can pay for this, the government's going to pay for these services." We're going to actually, pour, you know, funnel customer or patients to you to these um, startups as the oh, wow. first line of care. Because how would the they do that? Just co convince them to go to do well, it? Well, yeah, like I mean, they were basically actively dissuade or, or trying to dissuade patients to go tr from coming to the hospital because the hospitals were overrun. And they're like, look, we need to triage this. Basically, if you think you have COVID or you have some issue, use this free product, you know, from a startup that we're paying for. So they can triage you, like wherever you are. If it's right. a text message, like some of the, you know, some of these services are pretty, uh, pretty uh, sort of primitive in some sense. Um, and then we will figure it out. If you really need to go right. to a hospital, they'll refer you. That's pretty. That was a that was a huge sea change in terms of the way that the the you know the PPP, like the private public partnerships, were coming together. And so we saw that we that sort of play itself out in multiple markets. In markets as developed in Singapore to markets as emerging as India and Indonesia. Um, and I think that's really the the heart of the piece is that. There's a lot that can be learned. And actually, you know, what's interesting, and I was just having a conversation with uh, someone in the sort of the uh, PR sort of space earlier today, the, the clear thinking now is that now that the governments have started to really integrate their core functionality of public health with some of these um, sort of startups right. and that post pandemic or as pand the pandemic starts to recede, you're going to start to see them use that same, you know, sort of workflow, the same partnerships to do things that are more long, more like chronic in nature. So managing, you know, right. diabetes, man. So things that have been problems for, for health systems problems, that are, yeah. yeah. Now all of a sudden you're like, listen, we've got the infrastructure. We tested it out in the middle of a crisis. And now we're going to repurpose it for something that is going to be scalable and more long-term. So I think that's right. pretty exciting. And that we have not seen any of that in the U.S. yet, right? So that's kind of what the yeah. other part is. It's yeah. kind of weird because I don't know. I mean, this is just me thinking. You would think it would be the opposite where the U.S. would – government would it would be an easier and smoother transition to cooperate and work with all these startups versus Asia based on nothing really. It just it, it just seemed like it would be flipped. Yeah. So I, I think the answer to that is just two two points. One is, you know, necessity is a mother of invention, right? So like in this case, they just didn't have another option. Like people would just die. Right. right? And so you're like, okay, you're the you're, you know, some politician. And you're like, okay, am I literally literally when I have potential resources here Am I willing to let people die? That's not a trade-off they're willing to make. So I think that's one. I think the second Got thing, it. and this is a big thing, um, the U.S. has had, you know, it's a whole, you know, the analogy that they talk about with, um, you know, copper wires for phones. There's a lot of legacy infrastructure in the U.S. And that's good because it provides us great sort of facilities. But right. you now have like a barrier to basically, you know, leapfrogging into the next generation because you've got to justify the cost you spent on that legacy infrastructure. So I think you're seeing that in HIT, so health information technology, where you have these EHRs that are very out of date, but you still have to use them because, you know, someone's so spent yeah. a billion bucks on them and you can't just skip yeah. to mobile, right? You have to work with clunky interfaces. So I think that's the other the other challenge that the government is that starting to really. Yeah. It's, it's like there's more room to grow in Asia in a, in a way than there is here at this point. There, there, okay, there is. In, in a way. 
Yeah, there is. However, and this is this is the big asterisk on all of this, right? Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's, who does consulting and health, uh, sort of healthcare consulting, and he he pointed out he's like, you realize, so the Philippines is about I think it's about a hundred million population, right? The the expenditure on health of the Philippines is less than or is less than the state of Kansas. Okay, so you stop and think about that, right? The state of Kansas spends more on healthcare than the entire country of the Philippines. And I, I don't know, I don't so know, break that down like, for me. I don't, I don't yeah. even understand that. I don't well, know how, how, how expensive healthcare is in the U S and the flip side is it's actually quite lucrative for the people that are part of it. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's staggering. It's staggering hundred million people in the Philippines. I think, I don't know, the population of Kansas is what four or 5 million. I, I don't know, but it's not anywhere near that. Right. I don't even know where it's located. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, lovely, it's a lovely place. It's it's a yeah. You know. I, I have like four listeners there, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand that. I just I know very little about the health healthcare system. I just know it's super expensive here, and I don't, I don't understand how it got to this point. Which there's is a, a whole lot of podcast. There's a, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think <laughs> I, I think that's the flip side, right? So it's, it's it is more challenging, frankly, to build businesses in markets like India, Indonesia, where it's you've got huge populations, you've got a huge need. You've got all these sort of macro things that are great with no, no legacy, you know, easy adoption. But then you're like, right. well, I'm going to make literally like a fraction of a, you know, of a dollar on that person and I could make $10,000 on the American. So as a business, the Kansas it's, it's, person. It's, yeah. the, you go to Kansas, right? I mean, like, it's just, Done. that's if you want to make money, it's where you go. Like, it's much harder to do that. <laughs> so. That is crazy. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna have to. We're gonna have to sit down over drinks to explain that to me. So <laughs> basically, you can we say healthcare has changed forever in Asia in terms of a patient's going to doctors versus you know, using telehealth. I think so. I mean, I think it, it's also again, as I was saying earlier, just consumer adoption being so aggressive here of digital right. tech, um, and people just love it. Like WeChat and WhatsApp, all that sort of stuff is where people get all their information. Um, they're now directly connecting with doctors on it. They use video calls on WhatsApp to basically do the telemedicine piece. Um, so that's I think amazing. It, it's just, it's, you know, people are very mobile. And that's that's the other thing. The Philippines, you know, calling that country out again. I read somewhere recently that I think Google did a survey. The Philippines, I'm not sure this is a good thing, but Filipinos spend more time on social media or on their handphones than any other, you know, population, not on, I think on Earth or something like that. So they're very well connected for whatever, you know, okay. for the good and the bad. And as a result, yep. they're very comfortable with that sort of modality. So yeah, I mean, like the first thing you do is you go to your phone and like, you know, and, and you're able to pretty much do whatever you need off of that. So that's, I think. I would have thought it was definitely the US that would be up there, but wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Quick question during the, the pandemic, were you guys, for lack of better terminology, were you guys overwhelmed? What was, was it just a crazy time for you, for you guys to adjust to the numbers? No, it was actually, I mean, it's, we, yeah, I mean, I think our ops teams had to stretch a bit, but, um, right. you know, I think we had, the, so the one thing that, that the pandemic actually did do that was beneficial to manage this sort of surge, you know, you asked the question about doctors. I mean, the, physicians here tend to be like, let's say like, you know, now in the U S everything's patient centric care. You go in with like a Google printout and your doc's just sitting there like, all right, whatever you say, I'll give you. Right. You know, there's still that just a happened bit. to me. <laughs> yeah, I just took I just took Anya in and I was just telling her stuff and she was like, "Are you done?" I'm like, "I'm done." Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 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 here it's still kind of like the 80s or 70s where and, and the doctors embody this very much on the pedestal. Like, you come to me, I will bequeath you with great information. And they're amazing providers. Like, they're very very right. smart guys. But right. the sense of the power dynamics is a bit different, right? So. Got it. Uh, they were, let's say, less less open to adopting these new tech, regardless of the fact that their patients want it, because they're like, tech, you know, I don't believe in it, it's not safe, etc. But the minute the pandemic hit, all the clinics basically got slammed because no one would want to go to a clinic because they're like, oh, maybe someone there has COVID, so I'm not going to go there. I think that supply-demand imbalance really quickly kind of caught up to the docs, like, I'm not making any money. And so then they became much more receptive pretty quickly. So that answers the question you're asking, you know, how do we deal with it? Um, you know, we never really struggled to get doctors before, but okay. it was, it was, it okay. took, it took a bit of, it took a bit of coaxing and a lot more. And the minute this thing hit, we were able to get a lot of supply off the, um, uh, you know, off the market, really good guys we can train and, and, and put them on to, to work. So I mean, that, that all helped. you needed to do was, uh, get them drinks at 21 Hong Kong street. <laughs> yeah. it's, very, it's very easy, doctor. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Two, two part question. 
this is a very podcasty question, so a little cheesy, but future <laughs> of my doc, what's what's kind of the ultimate goal or maybe next five years? And then just for the audience who's, you know, I have a lot of lot of listeners in India and Asia right now as well. What do they need to know about the future of healthcare in Asia? Like I know that's such a that's a a huge topic. So um, if you can summarize it in a few points. So maybe I'll even, maybe I'll just make it more abstract. So not, not necessarily about the company, the company, you know, my, my, my sort of hope and wish is, you know, as an American, I set it up and I'm hoping, you know, I have some, I have a really good team. I would say in the next sort of little while, my, my senior leadership team are going to be locals that are going to be running it. So I'll have less sort of over sort of oversight over what goes on there, right. which I think is exactly by design. And you don't need a foreigner to sort of set up these type. I mean, you can set it up, but then if you, you are doing a few other things, by the way, I am exactly. So, so trying to keep my, there. trying to keep my, you know, trying to keep things quite, quite busy. So maybe the the answer I'll give is more about the broader question. I actually right. think that the real challenge in these markets is going to be a challenge that we know very well in America, which is cost sustainability. Um, you know, if you look at sort of the cost, it, even though I can make that comparison of the Philippines to the to, to Kansas. You know, underlying that is the fact that the, the the purchasing power in the Philippines is also l- much lesser than in Kansas. So, if you think of it from a relative perspective, it's still a, a very meaningful. So, healthcare is still a very meaningful part of the average Filipino family's budget, right? As it is for the average Kansan. So, I think the, right. the reality is, if you look at the the rate of increase in cost, um, Southeast Asia leads some parts of the world. Um, you know, Vietnam, I believe, like two years ago, was the had the fastest growing rate of medical inflation of any country on earth. And you're like, well, that's okay because Vietnam is a fairly is a fairly low cost country. But it, you know, on a relative basis, it starts to add up. So right. I think I really think that the trend here, and it's going to catch up to them, is really being able to restructure the healthcare system around a value-based sort of outcome-based model, right? So, and technology okay. can be very helpful. I, w- I won't dive in too deep into the nerdy stuff around that, but I, you know, you're <laughs> we seeing- love the nerdy stuff. We need <laughs> to learn about the nerdy stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, like in the U.S., it's starting to become really a really a big trend, and you see that happening with a lot of the organizations that are coming up, a lot, especially a lot of the uh, tech-driven companies that are saying, "Look, you know, very simply put, you know, if you, right now you go to a doctor, you know, you typically pay whatever money they they treat you, and you go home." There's no warranty right. on that, right? If you if you don't get any better, you go again and you pay more, right? And right. so at some point, there's an imbalance, right? And it's it's, it's a controversial topic because doctors are like, look, I did my best. The human body is complicated, you know, blah 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 blah. I get it. However, at some point, you're like, where's the risk? The risk is being borne by the payer. So the payer may be you because if you're paying out of pocket, it means you just keep paying until you get better. Or maybe the insurance company who's like, look, I'm this guy is going for this procedure that costs thousands of bucks, and then he gets sick and he's not going to get better. I'm just going to keep on paying. That doesn't make sense, right? right? We got to put right. some skin in the game on the side of the provider side. So, you know, I want to be able to track the, the, the data coming out of that specific provider. Um, best example, surgery. You know, you can see like if you, you have a, I don't know, a, page, a, a general surgeon that does hernia repairs. I mean, you know the complication rates. And, then, and now most hospitals track that. So obviously it's sort of, again, high level. Uh, from, a, from, a, from a system design perspective, makes a lot of sense. So you say, look, if there's three surgeons um, and they're all doing hernia repairs. This one guy has very, really, really, really good rates of, of completion, very little bounce backs, you know, no, compl- no, no complications. I should pay that guy more, right? Because that person should be incentivized to do the right thing. That's the principle. That's the principle. Now they're skimming ah. it, right? As opposed to being like, look, I'm just going to pay you whatever fee you ask for because Medicare sets, a parade, sets the rate for the procedure or you happen to be a celebrity doctor that can charge whatever you want, right? So the right. idea is that you're, you, there's skin in the game. There is kind of a warranty on what you're doing. Controversial for obvious reasons, right? Like there's obviously a loser in this whole game and you know it's people that are making a lot of money but didn't have to worry about the outcomes. So I think like right. ultimately that's that's actually pretty well advanced in the US markets. And you're seeing that from like big insurers are already starting to push that out. Really early days here in Asia where it's still very, the, you know, call the opposite of value-based care is fee-for-service. Um, where it's just you come in, fee, service, done, right, and no warranty. Right. Like you said, um, like kind of like the '80s and '90s, how how it is over there, right? It, exactly. So I think that's going to be a big trend. Um, in India, other markets are going to be very. They're going to have to. The the, I, the the cost pressures are universal, and that's going to be the. That's what I personally am quite passionate about because I think that's okay. really the big change that's going to occur over the next uh, next ten years or so. So basically, that's your new venture with Bunty. Is that what's going to happen? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's just start start the rumors now. Exactly. Do you get to go back to India a lot? 
for work? I haven't recently. I mean, obviously with the pandemic, okay. there's been a traveling. Right, right. Um, yeah, but no, I haven't. Yeah, I, I did a bit of travel before and, you know, before this whole lockdown stuff started, uh, but not as much. My, my focus okay. has been like, we've been growing mostly in Southeast Asia. So Thailand, or Hong Kong, lots of tri- like really quick trips up there and make sure we you know, set up teams and things like that. But right, things right. are pretty well established uh, now. Amazing. Yeah, you are doing some things there, my friend. I wish we could come visit you guys soon. Okay. I'm going to just brag about you a little bit because, you know, this is what we do on the podcast. So you guys, Snailhole received an MD from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and because he could, a JD from Columbia Law School, becoming the first student to graduate with both degrees in six years. So his parents are kind of proud, sort of. And then he served as clinical fellow at the Harvard Medical School, Fulbright Scholarship, to study the differences between the Singaporean and U.S. healthcare systems. I didn't know that. How did that happen? It was, I mean, so I, I was granted the scholarship. I actually ended up sort of uh, not taking it because Cravath wouldn't let me actually sort of take it and, and keep my offer. Okay. That's the story. Was this before you moved? Yeah, this is before. This is, totally, oh, this wow. is what's funny. So I applied. And That's so weird. That, it is really weird, right? There is a lot of irony there. Like I ended up here anyway. But yeah, I applied when I was actually doing my you know, general surgery uh, sort of residency and, um, and I was leaving and I knew I was going to like, oh, this would be interesting to do. So I got accepted here at the National University of Singapore to do a master's in economics um, and, and actually to, as part of the Fulbright program to do this comparative analysis. And I think it was, it was obviously very prestigious, really, really interesting sort of offer. Um, but then, you know, it, on top of the cravat thing, there was also my mentor who was an MDJD at Columbia. I called him up. I was. I remember where I got the offer. I was. I was backpacking across Vietnam, and I just got this email. I was like, "Holy crap! I got this. this is fantastic." And he actually said, "Look, you know, it's a really, it's prestigious. It's great, but I think you know, you've already done, you've done a lot of academic work. Um, if you do this, that's great. It just adds another, you know, another feather in your cap. But do you want to be a practitioner or do you want to be an academic? And I think that's one of those questions you have to sort of decide. And so, like, you know, right. and that was where I was like, okay, this is fantastic." But maybe it's time to to go make some money. <laughs> so get some practice. Doctors don't make money. Come on. <laughs> um, it's like it's sad so, how so, nowadays if you want to make money, you can't become a doctor. <laughs> That's true, right? Everyone gripes about that. But yeah, so I think that was. But it was ironic because then, of course, you know, fast forward four years later, and then here I am, right? It, it, so it ended up it was kind That's of crazy. Yeah, I was really just reading weird. that. I'm like, huh? Did that happen before he left? Yeah. Yeah. Meant to be, man. So yeah. you wear all these hats, obviously. Great dancer, which is a whole side note. But MD, <laughs> JD, entrepreneur. And this might be a, a silly question. Do you? Does your personality kind of lean towards one of these hats a little bit more? Or is it all just a blur? <laughs> it's such a really interesting question. I think, um, you know, I've sort of done trying to do soul searching on it. For me, it's just been... It's like, it's just, I like tackling challenges, right? It's, it's almost like a hokey answer, but it's really I mean, true, think. right? Yeah. I mean, or, <laughs> or I'm just a masochist, right? I like, I just like, to, <laughs> I like clean. I think that's really the answer. I mean, everything I've done is incredible. Even like residency, right? I could have done something simple, easy. I pick surgery, right? You know, law firms, I pick cravat. I mean, like there's, there's, there's definitely some sort of psychological thing that I need to get my head examined on. Um, but yeah, I, Do you I think, think look, I gotta ask you that. I want to. I don't pause you. Pause for a second here, and and, and doing doing a slight therapy session with you. With you, does any of this pressure or thinking any of it come from childhood? You think anything that you think you're trying to prove to your parents? Because I mean, this is it's amazing and it's great, but like that's not a joke. It's a really interesting question, right? I mean, as you're growing up brown in a very, you know, I grew up in a small town in the South too, right? So you're always trying to distinguish yourself. And I've thought about this more recently, you know, and, you know, I think this is very common for a lot of model minority people who grew up in in, in the U.S. where you don't fit in, you know, you don't fit in because you really don't. Like you're the only non-white person in your school until you go to college, which is my case, right? And so you're like, okay, well- where are you going to hang your hat? How do you how do you differentiate yourself, or how do you become part of the accepted crowd? And if even if people are nice to you, you you know there's that wall. So I think for like every model minority, you know, you know, person I know is basically be really smart and be very successful at that and own it, right? So people will be like, all right, that kid is really smart. She's going to go places, and so that's your thing. 
Um, I think right. that might there, right. it's, it's, there's definitely parts of that. It's there, such somewhere. a common story. I feel yeah. like Snehal, like all, I feel like all my guests that I have talked to have said pretty much the same thing. Have said, look, high school wasn't their time, but <laughs> now is. Like this is the way they wanted to prove themselves to whoever that may be, whether that's parents or that's the ex girl, whatever it is. And so, yeah, it is so. It's it's a crazy common theme amongst all of us. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 throwing yourself into new challenges, and you know, I mean, and I think I mean, I'll, I'll do the plug. It's really funny because. Um, people and in fact this happened with some of my investor friends are like well so you guys were at a fund and then you started a bar right like and, and, and <laughs> oh we're that, getting there <laughs> i know i know but i mean it's funny because i think it's from and then but i will say this like and i think bunty probably had a similar experience i mean uh, when he was in india right there is a lot of it's it is extremely challenging it's hard enough to start a company it's even harder to start companies in foreign mark foreign countries it doesn't matter whether you're ethnically kinship or whatever like I don't, I, I have never realized how American, and it's I've become more American the longer of I've course. been outside of the U.S. That's right? What, it happens. It, totally. And it's like it's just it's kind of toxic almost. But, yeah, I'm like, like I started just, wearing like the American flag in India. I'm like, what's happening to me now? Like I don't even know. Yeah, totally. So I think I think like it's it, there's got to be, a, a, and that's why I'm saying like I'm just waiting. It, it, something is going to blow up massively, and it'll be fine. We'll be totally fine because we've we've hedged ourselves. But we, I, we're definitely living on the edge in terms of let's just make it as complicated as possible. <laughs> ever, just like try to make it super, super hard, right? Like and see at some point you're going to stumble and fall. And I think that's really kind of part of the, it's part of the game, right? Like trying to tempt your fit yourself totally. to, the, to the edge, right? So I, I got to say, though, I, you know, after doing this podcast and I mean, I've already kind of known this just being around a lot of South Asians and, you know, we know a lot of we have all of us have this strong network. I feel really lucky to be this generation. I don't know what the hell mm-hmm. can happen to our kids, but the fact that we got both, we got our parents kind of immigrant drive and determination, but yet we had the, the room to do what we wanted, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, we got the best of both worlds. I think. I, I, I am hundred percent. Yeah. My wife and I actually talk about this. Like we, not just that, but I also, so I think that immigrant experience is very much the sort of that, that being between the two, I think at right. the time it was painful for no doubt. Right. Like, I mean, I never, I was never the kid that acted out when I was in high school. Cause I was like, all right, this is just it. I'm just going to crank it. But I know it was painful. Cause you're like, divi- you're like, you're, you have two, two different worlds you're occupying and you're straddling. Right. Right. But looking back, you're like, holy shit, that was an amazing gift. Right. But I also think it was also generational. Like we talk about the millennials and whatever gen. I, I can't keep them all straight. But the fact yeah, that we were, we came to like we we came you know sort of alive in an era where I remember looking at a freaking card catalog. I can go to back. I can look at a card catalog. And totally. Back, right? My son. Dewey no decimal clue. system. Dewey <laughs> exactly. does. Everyone should know this, by the way. <laughs> no, seriously, your kids. My, my son's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, what are yeah. you talking about? You you didn't just no, click something on your iPad. Like, what are you talking about? Right. It makes me sad for them, though. It makes me really sad for them as well. But I think it's really cool because, like, I I've seen that, and so I, I I can actually rationalize how you went from that that world to this world. And so, like, unlike our parents are still like typing like this on the keyboard. Like, I'm totally. I'm fooling. My, I'm, with I'm, my I'm dad bad. with his middle finger. This is how he types. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, Dad, let's just come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kind of think also not just that, but exactly what you said. I know we're talking about ourselves here. It's fine, but like, we kind of were born at this awesome time. Yeah, and 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 happened to be here. And yeah, I just find myself as I'm getting older and older, very lucky, and I'm hoping. We don't mess up our kids too much. I'm like, I, I'm like, mom and dad, can you guys raise them now? Because don't know what's happening. But no, it's interesting. Uh, that's why I like asking our, my guests about what drove them to get to this point. You know, yeah. it's kind of the same story. So that's good. We're all we're all brown. We're all the same. Really quickly about Singapore. You've lived there for a while. This social scene, and because it's South Asian podcast, how is the South Asian Indian scene in, in Singapore? Tons of Indians there. Do you? Uh, everyone's social everyone's out like what is it like for you guys there yeah it's actually pretty interesting i mean there there is a i mean there's there's a, a i would say a singaporean indian population here and it's right. you know it's sort of like you would see in new york where you have different communities that are all sort of um you know pretty strong and strongly cl- closely knit within their own communities i mean i have i do have some close singaporean indian friends they tend to be there's there's the bigger communities are from from the Tamil like the t- t- Tamilian population so South okay. Indian populations are quite large. 
Um, and then, you know, of course, Gujaratis are everywhere. So there's that. But I think you start to see these different sort of elements. And then you have like this sort of expat Indian population, which is also quite large. Um, and I think, you know, typically people get along pretty well. Um, I, I would say that the expat population tends to be more in finance. Again, you know, cliches being cliches. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of fun. I think it's a, it's a good yeah. group of people. I mean, it's really, it's kind of a melting pot and, and it's in a very Asian way, but it's very much a melting pot. So, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like I said, I've been there twice, right? Before, before you moved, loved it. Got my best haircut in Singapore, actually. Um, <laughs> I was very jealous because I remember when we were in India, Barth had gone there. I don't know what I was doing. Comes back and was like, dude, doctor, I don't know if you had just opened when did he open 28 Hong Kong Street? When did it? When did it? It was uh, 2011. Yeah. 2011. Right. So yeah. we were in Bangalore. I don't know why he didn't bring me with him. I was probably, who knows? Uh, he was like, dude, doctor has a bar called 28 Hong Kong Street. I, I guess he went there with you and blacked out for two days. I have no idea. <laughs> I was, he just, I, I remember him having a great time. Yes. Yeah, 10 years now, right? You guys. So. Yeah. You opened on top of everything else. This bar came about. You birthed a bar, birthed a bar called Twenty Eight Hong Kong Street with a few other partners. And the article that I was reading it says this bar gave rise to the craft cocktail scene scene in Singapore and Asia, which is like a big deal. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about it. What? How did this whole thing launch? And how has it the past ten years been? Yeah, so it's uh, so we so backing up the story about the fund. So we, you know, the same partners. We were at the fund. We're all leaving. We're okay. We're going to set up. For, we have run the fund. We're going to leave. We're going to start something in healthcare education. So basically, do that stuff. But as entrepreneurs, um, we had to stagger our exits just to make sure that relationships were kind of were maintained. And you know, we'd done pretty well. And so we were looking. I think one of the things we left, and then we we're like, well, okay, yeah, kind of want to take a break. I don't necessarily want to jump right back into setting up. You know clinics and whatever. And, uh, you know, Paul, my, my partner and I, who I know from, from New York, like back when we were lawyers, we would always go down to the meatpacking district, right. For a drink, like a Thursday night, it doesn't matter. It could be two in the morning when, just cause like, you know, if you're, even if you're like, that's, having that's a big where you're deal, supposed to go. You're supposed to go there, right? Exactly. Right. Like double, totally. du- like double sevens. And like sort of the, the right. really like the milk and honeys, like those, like the really, the, the really nice cocktail places were our spots. And, um, yeah. That's how it started. And we're like, well, shit, we're in Singapore. Um, Singapore's rich. It's got a lot of expats from a lot of p- parts of the world. And at the time, there were, there were I mean, I don't want to, it's not fair to say that we started it. There were one or two other really good bars that had like, okay. you know, proper mixologists from like London and other places. But we're like, there was no real kind of American style cocktail bar, especially like a la the New York scene that we were so familiar with. And so we're like, look, you know, like, you know, this is going to be a cliche. We don't care. We've got a little bit of money. Let's just go and open a bar. <laughs> Every guy wants a bar, right? So let's just do it. Of course. Um, bar without, or a band or something. something yeah, of course. And all, of course, yeah. our, our significant others all thought we were having life crises, whatever, all that. We're like, okay, fine. We're just going to do it. Maybe. Not, we, yeah. We're just going to put this together. And it was actually ended up being a lot of fun. We just found, you know, again, I think this is a kind of clear eye you can have when you're sort of an expat. It can go horribly wrong. But we're like, look, real estate wise found a really little spot that was perfectly well positioned next to the, big, the business district and like Clark Key, which was at the time the only real spot to go out. And I'm like, okay. this place is a ghost town, but it's like perfect location. The real estate's like cheap, you know, cheapest chips. We got to do it. So we took right. over an old, uh, what was it? it was a travel agency. Cause I remember seeing like, look, uh, we walked in when we took, o- took it over and there was still like a stewardess, like those, you know, those old like sort of placards that you have in cardboard, like, welcome to China Airlines or whatever. And we're like, okay, so <laughs> yeah. taking this over, stripped it out. And actually we built it ourselves. Like, so one of my partner's experiences in construction. So he literally was sawing and putting together like the actual benches of the original. That's kind of awesome though, right? That's kind of yeah. fun. It was totally what fun. What about the I design mean, like, and stuff? The concept we did and it. the design we did all and Okay. Everything. Yeah. So like he- Was it based was on anything that you- yeah, I mean, I mean, I know maybe a mix of New York bars. It was a mix of New York bars, a kind of a melange, like basically try to fit out the space. Um, but yeah, like we, okay, so it, this is now so cliched, it's not even funny. But back then there was, you couldn't find Edison light bulbs anywhere in Singapore, right? So everyone's had wow. fluorescent, okay. hate fluorescent lights. So it's everywhere in Asia, right? Fluorescent lights. In India, remember like, you can't go anywhere on the freaking tube light. It's the worst. It's yeah. the worst. So we actually had to, I forgot, I think we had to ship in like those, you know, those, those beautiful Edison bulbs that are now everywhere. But yeah. I think it was public in New York that I remember seeing that sort of take the Avrico design space. 
And we were like, look, we want those. We actually got them in. And so those were like just elements we picked up sort of in our, in our lives. And yeah. And then, then I think the other, the big step that we took was like, look, you know, most people at the time, unfortunately, were treating, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate reality, but in this part of the world, if you're in service, you're not considered, you know, it's not a, 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 an aspirational job, right? You don't, people don't want to be a bartender. They don't want to be a server. Right? It's considered, you know, sort of downtrodden and you know, families don't want their, you know, in America, that's what you do. You go flip burgers for a week, you know, for right, you know, right, totally. you know, 14 or whatever. Got, that's like the first job you do. Right, that's right. Exactly. You learn, right? So we were able to recruit a, a, a top, uh, mix, uh, sorry, a top bartender from San Francisco to come out to be our opening okay. bartender. Who's just amazing. He's very magnetic personality, very extroverted. And that was it. Like, we were just like, look, let's do it. We want to focus on craft cocktails. This is literally what we remember growing up in New York. Business rise from business plan makes sense. There's a lot of people from these parts of the world. Like, let's give it a shot. Worst case, we're not going to be out that much money, fifth lops, right? And then, yeah, lo and behold, like, we never expected it. So, I mean, you know, bars life, the lifespan of a bar is worse than a startup, like a, than a tech startup. Like, those <laughs> things just flip every three months, right? Right, um, right, And so, right. to be 10 years later and be like, wow, the thing's still making money. It's still going strong. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of fun, right? When these things kind of work out. So, yeah. That is so awesome. I remember, I feel like Barth was telling me, and this was 10 years ago again, so it might have changed, but it was just, it's just a door, right? There's no door. like yeah. sign. It's just kind of like, in, like undercover. And I mean, I'm sure people know where it is now, but maybe at the beginning it was like not as easy to find. Yeah. Like people, a speakeasy in a way. Yeah. Yeah. They'd be like going out, where is this place? It's kind of a sketchy street. Like there's like KTVs and stuff. Like, you don't, why am I here? Right. And then they'd go in That's and like, awesome. this is really cool. I think what's actually really interesting beyond that is like the, it's also given birth to other, other companies that are, you know, really scaling. So we have this company proof, which is basically a big distributor, but then uh, another company that was a spinoff essentially that all comes from 28. Cause none of us were in spirits. Like we didn't know anything besides like to drink a lot. But, um, yeah. you know, there's a company called eco spirits that were, that that's now scaling. It's launching in the U S pretty soon. It's basically a circular economy sustainability model. So essentially, if you think okay. about it, when you go to a bar, you, you know, you, they will pour you a drink out of a big glass bottle, like a beautiful bottle of whatever gin, etc. When you're done, you throw in the trash, right? So that glass is just being wasted. So the idea here is basically to create a recyclable, like a circular economy model where you can actually get those spirits, you know, sort of filled at source. And then it comes to the bar, there's a filling station, actually refill those bottles. So you're using, you keep oh, those bottles nice. together. Yeah. And then, and then are able to then continue to reuse that. And you save a ton of CO2 by doing that because you don't have to, because glass is very heavy and, you know, all the sort of production yeah. value, et cetera. So I think that, that business is, is doing quite well. And it's, you know, we're now in you know, all around it. We just launched in Europe in like five countries and launching in the US and California and Florida pretty soon. So that's pretty, pretty exciting. How yeah. are you standing up? I don't even understand you. This is insane. <laughs> okay. So I want to round this out with, again, a, a little cheesiness, but something that you and I probably would never talk about if we were sitting at a bar together, which will hopefully happen soon. We are... Kai, I guess you could say halfway done with our lives, kind of. Oh, yeah, it's depressing. Whatever. <laughs> I know. I know. Don't worry about it. It's fine. We're, we're all going to drink together till the end. You've done, I mean, so much, so many amazing things, so many projects, so many, like we said, different hat, worn different hats. What do you want to be known for? Oh, wow. Um, it's a good one. Oh, or you, even if, if there's just an go- adjective that, that, resonates with you well if we're going to be cheesy then i might as well just say he was you know he he didn't he never backed down from trying something crazy i mean i think that's kind of re- the reality yeah. right like it's you yeah know, no, i love i cheesy is okay cheesy and nerdy is good we're yeah. old enough to be cheesy and nerdy so own, it, own it own it own <laughs> exactly. it, own own it. it. Yeah. so you never back down you always want i think also maybe with along with that it just makes you a curious person, like always wanting to try new I, things. I, you right? know what? Uh, let me make this point. I think this is actually important, especially for the, our community, right? And I, my mom, even to this day, is like, I don't get you, Birta. Why are you doing all these different things, right? And it's true though, right? Because if you think about it, you know, one of the things that you know, I think South Asians in general, we learned that from our parents, like, okay, we got you this country. We gave you these opportunities. You need to, you know, become a doctor and just stay on that path. Like, you'll be fine, right? Don't do anything crazy. Just be conservative, stick to it. I've sort of bucked that, right? And like, that's not, and I, and, you know, we're, I'm, again, I'm, gonna, I'm waiting for my first blow up, which will happen. It, and I'll be fine because of it. So like, that is the difference, I think. Like being able to sort of go against that sort of grain of like, I need to have a 
I'm going to be a surgeon for the next 40 years of my life and just be in a hospital. That was something I didn't want right. to do. Right. And right. so I'm going to try a bunch right. of different things. They may not necessarily fit together in a narrative that's nice and neat, but for right. me, it was the right thing at the time. And I've learned from that. And I think I'm starting to, every step is another step in the journey that's making me take, taking me to the next step. Like, oh shit, like I learned that. I'm going to apply it to my skills here, even though it's a different business, different industry, you know, different sector, doesn't matter. I right? think that's great. I mean, I think that keeps you, I guess, again, cheesy, but it keeps you young, like being curious and trying these new things into our 40s and 50s. Like not many people do that anymore, you know? And so I think it's great. I also think like our parents, like back to our parents, they didn't really have a choice to try new things, right? They were just trying to survive. Exactly. They, they came here to survive and to give that opportunity to us. And now we are taking it. Like, I'm like, oh, I'll go to law school and then write for Vogue and start a podcast. Sure. Why not? Why not? You know, it, it, it's because we, my parents were able to give me that platform, right? <laughs> I got to tell you, so. just on that point, like I can tell you a really funny anecdote. So this weekend we went off, so Sentosa Island is a little cheesy, but a resort island. So we had a staycation. I, I, I've been skydiving, but I've never been bungee cord jumping. So I decided to go do that, right? I, I do a bungee cord jumps, fun, it's ex really exciting, et cetera. First time. I sent this message to my parents. Like, I sent a video of the whole me jumping and stuff. Now, this is so, this is like literally the experience. And I think there's so many of your listeners will get, will totally get this. My dad and my mom get the same message I get from, from my mom. You're crazy. Think of your son. Like, this is crazy. My dad, who's independently somewhere else, sends like, sends me two thumbs up. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, that's like my life in a, in a box, right? Like you have one parent who's just a, and that's my dad. Like if you think about the, you know, our families as they move overseas, like one person is like to hell with this. I don't care. I'm going to buck right. trends. I'm going to plane. I mean, I'll talk to my family for the next four years, but I'm going to go right. and start a new life. So for him, it's right. just a natural. It's like, you just jump. That's great. And my do mom's like, oh my God, what are you doing? Like, you know, your, your, your son, I'm like, you know, it's just don't so be too funny. hard on moms. Okay. We worry too much. We worry for, we worry for you guys. Well, yeah. You know what? At the end of the day, our parents immigrated here. So they are the original OG adventurers. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Always fantastic catching up with friends. You guys, please check out my doc by going to my-docdoc.com. They are the telehealth company of the year in Asia. So definitely check out what they're doing. As always, you can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast, Tuckered Out with Ami.com. You guys, it's, it's November. I have like, I don't know, seven episodes left for the year. What the happened to 2021? This is madness. Anywho, thank you guys for listening and sticking with me. Love ya. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>